Well, it's good to be here at Berean Baptist Church, and I'm just uh, grateful uh, for the opportunity. I've got a chance to meet a few of you, and so look forward to just meeting more of you as, as the Lord directs. Uh, as uh, Pastor Lang mentioned, I am uh, partnering with Evangelist Chris Miller, and I know many of you are just praying in anticipation of what God wants to do, even during revival meetings next week. And so I just encourage you, I know many of you are already involved in that prayer work, but if you aren't, I just encourage you to sign on and join the prayer burden. Uh, this is not a work of man, this is a work of God, and so God is moved by prayer. That's how God has uh, deemed fit to work in our day, is to use prayer, you and I praying. Uh, to get a hold of God, seek His face. And so I, I trust that's your heartbeat. I'm reminded of James chapter 5. It says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's effective. And so as you just seek the Lord in your own life, allow Him to work in your life and be an intercessor, the Lord will use that. And I know the Lord will do uh, great things. Just a, a couple uh, announcements as we look forward to um, next week in the meetings, uh, Brother Miller just did ask me to give some practical ways that you can be preparing uh, for uh, the revival meetings. Number one is pray. We already talked about that, but that's important. Just pray, seek the Lord. And I encourage you just to start with yourself. Lord, what is it that you want to teach me about? What is it that you see in my life that you want to change? If we'll be open, uh, the Lord will hear that cry. So pray. And then pray not just for yourself, but others. Uh, so pray, number one. And then number two, plan. Uh, would you plan to be here as much as possible every single night? It's Monday, so start Sunday. and goes all the way through Thursday night. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. And you'll be blessed. I've just been encouraged partnering with Brother Miller and just to see his heart for prayer, heart for revival. I know you'll be blessed. Don't miss... What God wants, how God wants to speak to you through your word. I realize there's some uh, scheduling conflicts that can come up, perhaps work, um, but as much as possible, even a rearranging um, those uh, work schedules or even time the kids get to bed or even supper time, uh, just make it a priority to be here every night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and God will bless you richly for it. Number three is a pray, plan. And then number three, invite. No doubt the Lord's put a burden on your heart uh, for people specifically. And I would just encourage you even now to be inviting uh, perhaps unsaved people. Maybe your neighbor, uh, perhaps a co-worker, a friend, someone that God's laying on your heart. And just ask the Lord to give you an open opportunity and then take the opportunity to invite them even starting uh, right away this week. Sometimes it takes multiple times uh, just to invite someone before they come. Uh, so let's just be faithful at inviting folks. There's going to be a special uh, gospel message on Sunday morning and then a friend day emphasis on Wednesday night. Uh, so just be planning and inviting toward that. And I trust the Lord uh, will use that. I know he will uh, respond uh, to our prayers. As we think about revival, uh, perhaps you've heard that word used often. Uh, perhaps it's a new, newer type of concept to you. Revival is very simply, it just means life again. Re is again and vive is life. And really as we think about revival, it's something that 
happens to God's people. I like to say you can't be revived unless you've first been vived. All right? So we have to be saved. We have to be believers. But you and I as believers need rekindling. We need reviving, awakening, quickening to the Spirit of God. To allow the Lord to show us things in our lives that are sin, things that are hindrances in our walk with God. We need a quickening uh, to a conviction of the Holy Spirit, a sensitivity uh, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We need a quickening, a, an awakening, a hatred for sin. Um, a classic revival passage that I believe the Lord's directing us to uh, this morning is James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We look at our nation around us. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, we need revival in America. And I certainly concur with that. But when we talk about revival for America, really we're talking about revival for God's people. Uh, there's a lot of turmoil in our world today. A lot of things happening in politics right now. A lot of things happening on the international front. And when I was a young person, uh, I was heavily involved in uh, politics. Uh, that was where my heart was. Um, and the Lord really arrested my attention uh, when I was in seminary, just before I went to seminary, that the answer for today's world is not in government. The answer in today's world is not electing the right leader. Now, I trust you're involved. We need a vote as Christians. Um, but the fact is, the answer for today's need, it's not an economic problem that we have primarily. It's not a financial problem that we have primarily. Can I say this? It's a spiritual problem. And so the answer for today, for revival, is not in government, but in God's house. Right here. You and I. As believers. And revival is just simply, could we say, walking rightly related to God. It's being clean. A clean vessel where the life of Jesus can flow through you and I. This world needs to see Jesus. They don't need to see you. They don't need to see me. But they need to see Jesus. And there's one thing that's going to cloud or hinder people from seeing Jesus through us. You know what it is? It's sin. Jonathan Goforth said this. He said, the only hindrance to revival is sin. And so you and I, as we look at James chapter 4, I just trust, again, I'm just a messenger, but I trust that the Lord will just use the text of this passage, His Word, just to put his finger on any area of sin in our lives that is clouding the picture, clouding the full, clear, shining forth of Jesus in our lives. We're going to read the text. It's a rather lengthy text. I'm not sure if you uh, usually do this, but could I just ask you to stand as we read James chapter 4. Stand together with me. We'll read... A rather lengthy section, it's ten verses, with James chapter 4 and verse number 1. It says this, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers, 
and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but He giveth more grace? Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. I want to draw our attention to what I believe is the central focus, the crux verse, verse number 6. Could we all read verse number 6 together? But He giveth more grace. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Tato, my message this morning is simply this, God's enabling grace. Can we pray? Lord, thank You for Your grace that enables us to respond to You. And so, Lord, I pray that You take Your Word, apply it to our hearts where it's needed. And, Lord, I pray that we just respond to Your enabling grace. In Your name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. There was a preacher in London uh, in the mid-1600s. And before his conversion, uh, his life was marked by debauchery, uh, by drunkenness and immorality. And he uh, was married to a Christian lady, a dear, godly Christian woman. And God used the testimony of his wife to really convict this man. Again, he, he lived a debauched life, and he looked at the testimony of his wife, and he says, you know, she has something I want. And so he did, just for a very uh, period of time, several months, made a remarkable change in his life. He, he stopped drinking. He stopped the immorality that he was involved in. And he looked good. He ended up going to church faithfully, regularly. But he was still miserable. In fact, he was almost more miserable now after he had changed than before. He just couldn't quite understand what's going on. I, I'm changing, you know, I have, I, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing. And, and then God used three ladies who were alive in Christ, rejoicing in Jesus, just revived. God used the conversation of those three ladies to point him through the abundance of God's grace. This preacher, of course, he wasn't a preacher at this time, but he realized he had been trying to put up a facade. He was trying to change in his own strength. He was really the change that was evident that people could see in his life was not much more than just sheer grit and determination. It was him. And he recognized that Jesus Christ gave him power to live the life he couldn't live. You see, before this time, this man had rejected Jesus Christ. He had just tried to put a form 
uh, a form of godliness. And God used both the testimonies of his wife and then these three ladies to point him to the fact that it's Jesus. Grace and he received Jesus as his personal Savior, and then recognized it wasn't just a life of grit and determination and self effort, but recognized it was the grace of God that would enable him to live the life he couldn't live himself. Well, God used this man, he went on to be a preacher, he ended up uh, being very courageous, taking a stand for the Lord, and at this time. Um, God actually uh, saw fit for him to go through a period of persecution. He ended up being thrown in jail for 12 years. Perhaps you know the name, but in those 12 years, during those 12 years in prison, he wrote a book that perhaps you're familiar with, the book Pilgrim's Progress. You're familiar with the book? But John Bunyan also wrote another book. And his book really is autobiography. It's a testimony of God's abounding grace in his life. And the title of his autobiography is simply this, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. God transformed a a man, John Bunyan, from a selfish, licentious individual to a courageous man of God. And it all came about through the grace of God. Really, his testimony highlights the truth that we just saw in verse number 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. So I want to just, in our time together, look at three specific aspects of God's enabling grace. Number one, the need for grace. Number two, the gift of grace. And then number three, the application of grace. How do we receive this grace and what does grace motivate us to do? What does it move us to do? Let's look at the need of grace. Why do you and I, as believers, need God's grace? If you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need the grace of God. Can I say here this morning, if... You've never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior. You need God's grace. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, The grace of God hath appeared to all men. Now, you and I need God's grace, and I trust if you haven't made the decision to believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you would do that even today. Recognize there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do that's going to merit favor with God and grant you eternal life. It's only the grace of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, that God commended, He showed His love toward us. How did He do it? By sending His Son. Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Many of you I recognize have probably already made that decision to trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. You've depended on His enabling grace. But are you depending on God's enabling grace even right now? The circumstances you find yourself? Because in this passage, we're reminded of the need for grace. Why do we need grace? Why do you and I as believers need grace? In this passage, it helps us to look at the context 
Why do we need grace? And for this, let's look at verse number 4 and 5. It says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? The reason you and I need grace is the fact that God has called you and I to live wholly devoted to Him. You realize this morning, God has called you and I to a high and holy calling. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. In fact, if we were to go through the Bible, in virtually every book in the, Old, in the New Testament, specifically the letters, the epistles, you would find a reference, at least one, maybe several references to this high and holy calling where God has saved you and I as believers not to just live unto ourselves, but to live unto Him who died for us. To live a life wholly devoted to Him. Here's a couple references just to remind us, uh, remind us of this high and holy calling. 1 Peter 1 and verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, it says this, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, Touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, it says this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. The fact is, you and I are called by God to live a high and holy life, a whole life wholly devoted to the Lord. But the pressures of the world are great. We see in this passage friendship with the world. God uses an illustration. It's a very gripping illustration to describe what it looks like for a Christian to be a friend of the world. He uses a marriage relationship. He uses the words adulterers and adulteresses. Strong words. Can I remind you here this morning that James is talking to believers. He's talking to you and I. Eleven times the phrase, my brethren, is used. And so he's talking to you and I, and God actually tells us, he says, it's possible for you and I as believers to be adulterers and adulteresses. Perhaps you've been to a wedding. I'm sure many of you have. But isn't it a beautiful picture when there's a man and a woman that come together and uh, share their vows, they're united in marriage. It's a tragic thing when perhaps a month later or several years later, one spouse is unfaithful to another spouse. 
Oftentimes it's not just the fault of one party, but both parties. But it's a terrible thing when there's unfaithfulness in any regard and that marriage is separated. When that marriage is leaves all kinds of broken lives and shattered relationships. There's devastation. And we grieve at those kinds of situations, and yet God uses that picture of you and I as a believer, if we are a friend with the world, that we actually are an adulterer and adulteress in the sight of Almighty God. James 4, verse 4, it's a sobering warning. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. If you and I in any way seek to align ourselves with the world, it puts distance between us and God. It blocks the free-flowing Holy Spirit who wants to overflow the life of Jesus through us. When you and I allow sin in our lives, what does friendship with the world look like? Well, friendship with the world, the word friend just simply means an affection or fondness. The picture is the the world as a friend. He's seeking to woo us. Satan uses the the pressures, the, the influence of the world to draw us, to woo us to itself. In what ways is the world exerting its influence on you? I think it's important for you and I, all of us here, to just recognize it's the world is having an influence on us. And I'm here to ask you, and I ask myself this, in what way specifically is the world influencing our lives? You remember the story of Abraham and Lot in Genesis chapter 13. The tendency for you and I, our natural tendency as as humans, is to think, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm not involved in any heinous sin, whatever that may be. But the fact is, Sometimes just our familiarity with sin can cause us to become desensitized to it. Lot and Abraham, they were there in Genesis chapter 13. They had two uh, large companies, too too much possessions, too many flocks to be together. They had to separate. And Lot decided that he would take the plain of Jordan. He looked and saw Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Lot wasn't initially thinking, I want Sodom. I want what Sodom has to offer with all of its wickedness and all of that. That's, I don't believe what's on Lot's mind. He just made the convenient decision. He said, it's a well-watered land. And so he decided, I want what seems best materially. And he made the convenient decision. Well, you know the story. It wasn't long where Lot wasn't just looking towards Sodom, but he actually pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then actually went from looking and longing for Sodom to actually living in Sodom. And then he didn't just stop there, he actually became a leader in Sodom. 
sitting at the city gates. And you know the story, perhaps. He lost his family in Sodom. He never would have anticipated the simple small step of pitching his tent would have had that profound of impact on him personally and on his family for generations to come. See, friendship with the world is very subtle. Do you have a fondness and affection for the world? The world seeks to influence us in all kinds of different ways. Uh, Lot, the Bible says, in First Peter was in Second Peter was influenced. He vexed his righteous soul by seeing and hearing. In other words, what he looked at and what he heard was a way the world was having an influence on him. How does the world influence us today? Well, in the same way, really, right? Seeing and hearing. Media is a powerful tool that the world uses to influence us. There's a sense where you and I have a degree of control of the amount of influence that we allow the world to have on us. How much time do you spend watching media? Whether it's TV, whether it's listening to the radio, whether it's watching the internet, watching news. We've got to acknowledge, first of all, there's areas, there's inroads where the world is having an influence on us. I just want to ask you today, is there any way, is there any area that you're exerting, uh, cultivating a fondness or affection for the world's philosophy, the world's lifestyle, or the world's entertainment? How is the world seeking to pull you away from God? Reminded of the song, is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? Sin is so deceptive, it's so subtle. And Satan likes it, so he makes the the things of this world, the lust of this world, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, whatever it is, he makes it seem so appealing that we have to have it. If we don't have it, we feel like we're missing out. It's a lie of the enemy. Reminded of this uh, story in, in Alaska. Anyone from Alaska by chance? Anyone been to Alaska? Okay, very good, a few of you. I'm told, I'd love to go to Alaska, I've not been there. I'm, I'm told that um, they have a unique way of hunting coyotes or wolves up in Alaska. Uh, perhaps you've heard this, uh, but they, the, the coats of these coyotes, the fur is very valuable. And so they like to hunt coyotes in order to be able to uh, trade the fur. The natives, of course, of Alaska have a very unique way of doing this. What they do is they take a knife with a blade edge about six to eight inches, and they kill another animal. And with that uh, knife, they dip the, uh, the knife in the blood of the, other, the animal that's been killed. They'll dip the knife in the blood, put it in the... Uh, freezer, and they repeat that process over and over until that knife has, is thickly clo- coated with the blood of a dead animal. Well, then they take that knife, which is coated several times thick, they plant it, the handle in the snow, and guess what coyotes love? The scent of blood. The scent of a wild animal, a dead animal. 
And so they are drawn to that blood on that knife and they end up licking the blood off of the knife. And they're so, I mean, it's so tantalizing. It's like, this is just what I want. It's the, I mean, here it is. I don't even have to go and uh, kill an animal myself. I've got it right here. This is everything I want. And they're just, this coyote is licking and licking and licking until he's actually licking his own blood. And he killed, he's killed because he was lured by the bait. That's a graphic illustration of what sin is. Satan makes sin seem so tantalizing. What we see, it just pleases us. There's that sense of instant gratification the philosophies of the world, the selfishness of the world. And Satan just makes us think you have to have this. And that's how he gets us sucked in. Realize sin is so subtle, but it's also serious. We've looked at this, but God is calling us to a life wholly devoted to Him. And He says when you're a friend of the world, when you take Satan's bait, You actually are becoming a friend of the world. You're buying into the lies of the enemy. Can I say this? The world out there is much like the woman in Proverbs chapter 9. Personified as a foolish woman, calling to simple ones that are passing through daily light, the streets there. And this foolish woman says, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Stolen waters are sweet. There's a sense of instant gratification when we give in to sin. But then the verse goes on to say, the next verse it says, but he knoweth not that the dead are there. Every time you and I give in to sin, give in to temptation, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, whether it's worry, whether it's lust, whatever the temptation is, whatever can I say the natural tendency of our flesh is, when you and I give in to that temptation, we're partaking of death. Often we think, well, death, that's a a punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. And we think of that in the context of an unbeliever, and that is a sobering reality. Do you realize that sin always works death? It works death even in the life of a believer. Now the fact is, you'll always be a child of God. That can never change, and I'm thankful for that. But sin puts distance between you and God. It separates a fellowship. It breaks the fellowship with God. See, sin is a serious thing. And as James 4 tells us, he says, friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. Verse number 5, it says this, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? I personally believe this is a reference, the spirit that dwelleth in us, to the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Oftentimes the word lust is, is used in Scripture to refer to a negative, a lusting after something that's wrong. This word here, envy, could be translated jealousy. I believe the picture is the Holy Spirit lusts to envy. In other words, He earnestly desires with jealousy to have us as His own. 
you realize there's several verses in the Bible that talk about the jealousy of God in a right and proper sense. You realize we are not our own. Jesus has bought you and I with His precious blood. He died on the cross so that we could be a purchased possession. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds us of that. It says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, all things are created for thy pleasure. Here's some verses talking about the jealousy of God. I am the Lord, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14. Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, I am a jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. God desires you and I to be wholly devoted to Him. God desires you and I to have our hearts and our affections united to obey the Lord, to love the Lord. Can I ask you, does God have all of your affections? Does God have all your undivided love and loyalty? What does friendship with the world look like? There's many different applications in this text, specifically verses 1-3. through Pursuing our own selfish lust. That's what friendship with the world looks like. We live in a selfish world where we want what we want. And verses 1-3 through talks about the fact of believers who either don't pray because they're manipulating their own way, or verse 3 where it says you do pray, but it's... You're praying amiss because you're consuming it on your own lust. And so certainly selfishness is a picture of friendship with the world. Entertaining known or unconfessed sin. That's what friendship with the world looks like. How about idolizing hobbies above your walk with God? That can be sports. It can be shopping. It can be social media. There can be things that aren't intrinsically wrong themselves, but if they become an idol, something that we value more than God. How do you know if you value something more than God? How do you spend your time? If you were to take the time you spent with the world's media and compare that with the time you spent you spend in God's Word, it's a reflection, are we a friend of the world? It's a reflection of our affections. Well, you may say, and you think about the story of Lot that we talked about, say, well, yeah, but I mean, don't we live in, in the world? We live in a corrupt society. And so isn't, you know, Jesus said we're of the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Almost like a little bit of sin is okay. I just want to say in 21st century America, where we see families torn apart, where we see immorality and sensuality just on full display. God's standard for holiness has not changed. God's purity has not changed. God's call on yours and my life to live a holy life, wholly devoted to Him, has not changed. And so our tendency in our flesh can be to kind of bend the standard a little bit. 
So we don't just seem so weird, so out there. We begin to look at perhaps what's common, what's comfortable, what other people are doing, and we look at where other people are and we say, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Perhaps even in your own personal life, you can look back at a time when there's sin in your life that you are more engaged in than now. You can see the progress you've made. Praise the Lord for that. But sometimes we can get content with where we are and say, well, I'm not as bad as I used to be. And I'm better than perhaps someone else. Or at least I'm fit in with a certain group of people. So you and I have to recognize that it's God's standard that is the only thing that matters. It's not what the person's next to you, sitting next to you, their standard. It's not the church down the road, their standard. It's not someone else's standard. It's God Almighty's standard. A standard of holiness, a standard of purity, a, a A picture of pure love. Fellowship with God. The need for grace. Wow. Our tendency is to perhaps redefine the standard, but God doesn't change His standard. But what He does do is in verse 6. But He gives more grace. God gives more grace. When we want to redefine the standard, God actually says, no, I'm calling you to a life of holiness and I'm enabling you. That's God's grace. His divine enablement. His freedom. His power to do what He's called us to do. He gives more grace. I love this. The gift of grace. God's grace is not an excuse for compromise with the world. Rather, it's the divine enablement to do what God wants us to do. We need God's grace for a lot of things. We need it for trials. We need it for difficulties. We need it for the hurts and offenses of others. But in this context specifically, you and I need God's grace to live a life wholly set apart unto God. We need His grace. God's grace, notice He giveth. I love that word giveth because the idea is it's a present tense. God presently gives grace. He gives grace today. God's grace is sufficient to meet your present circumstance. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. The, uh, sometimes Satan can make a temptation seem so strong, so powerful, that I just can't seem to resist it. Is that you? And yet God's grace is actually greater to meet any temptation that we experience. Notice He gives it abundantly. God gives more grace. I love this. In Romans 5.20 it says this, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. God's grace is sufficient to meet any circumstance you're going through. God's grace doesn't just work in some situations. It's sufficient for all situations. No temptation is too great. No trial is too severe. No offense is too hurtful where God's grace is not sufficient to meet the need. God's grace is more grace. It's above and beyond any challenge that we face. 
when the pressures of 21st century America increases, God's grace is greater. When our natural fleshly tendency screams against obedience to God, God's grace is greater. This is the gift of grace. He gives more grace. Perhaps you know the name Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy spent many a month, several months in a Nazi concentration camp in Ravensbrück. Suffered almost unimaginable pain and suffering. Betsy even lost her life in that concentration camp. Well, it was a struggle for Corey Ten Boom, but God used the influence of her sister and again, God's abundant grace just to lead Corey Ten Boom to be a, a person who forgives. God opened up opportunities for Corey Ten Boom to give her testimony. Just the power of God's grace and forgiveness in different churches. And so as she was preaching in one meeting, and perhaps you've heard this story, She's preaching about the sufficiency of God's grace, the abundance of God's grace, and just the ability God gives to forgive. After the meeting closed, there was a man who made his way to the front to shake her hand. He immediately recognized him as he was coming down the aisle and her heart almost stood still. She knew that man. She recognized this was one of the cruelest guards there at Ravensbrook. Her sister had died in Ravensbrook. And flashbacks of all the things that had happened at that time. And here she had just preached on God's sufficiency, God's grace, His enablement. And here she's faced with an opportunity to forgive in the natural temptation would have been to say I'm not going to forgive it's too difficult it's too hard and yet Corey Ten Boom in that moment said God I can't forgive God I can't she said God you're going to have to help me she said God I'm going to Put my hand out to shake his hand, but you're going to have to supply the feeling. And the moment Corey Ten boomed in that, it was almost like a feeling from her shoulder down through her hand that just gave enablement and strength. And Corey Ten Boom was able to say with a whole heart, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. That's a picture of grace. Our natural tendency is to give in to temptation our natural tendency is to give in to fear it's our natural tendency is to give in to resentment and worry to give in to what we want but God's grace is available if we'll just acknowledge our need for it the gift of grace but notice also the application of grace how do we receive this grace how do we receive God's grace look if you would in verse, the last part of verse number 6, it says this, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. The idea of resist is the idea of stiff arm. God stiff arms the proud. 
the proud believer. You and I like to think we're better than we are. I'm preaching this to myself as much as you. God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. God's grace, it's available, it's there, but God's grace must be accepted. We must take God's grace. Pride says, I can handle this. I can handle this situation. But humility says, I need God. Well, God graciously gives us a picture of humility, a portrait of humility. In the next few verses, in verse 7 through 10, God gives 10 imperatives. We don't have time to develop these fully, but I want to just highlight a few of these. Because they're imperatives that actually give us a picture of what humility looks like. And I would encourage you, perhaps even in your own time with the Lord, to use these ten imperatives as almost like a checklist in your prayer life to bring before the Lord. Say, God, what's your evaluation of my life? God, how would you describe me? Am I a humble person? Am I a person that is able to receive your grace. God says He gives grace. It's available. It's abundant. But the condition is humility. God gives grace to the humble. So what does humility look like? Again, these ten imperatives give us a portrait. What humility looks like. Number one, submit yourselves therefore to God. Humility looks like submitting ourselves to God. It looks like placing ourselves under God's authority. He's the master. I'm the servant. Is that you? In your life today, you recognize God. My life is not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about what you want. Here are some questions to ask ourselves. Am I submitting to God in every area of my life? Young person, you may say, you know, I want to know God's will for my life. Can I say this? Are you obeying God in the areas He has given you light? Are you obeying your parents? Submitting ourselves to God looks like placing ourselves under God-ordained authority. Another question to ask ourselves is, my will yielded to God? Am I obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? It's so easy when we're faced with temptation in modesty in our culture. Someone does something in that rise of anger, frustration. It's so easy to just, as it were, turn the volume down on the voice of the Holy Spirit. Where we don't listen to His promptings. And perhaps we've created a pattern of that where we actually don't even recognize God speaking to us. Am I obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? 
Am I resisting God's hand in my life in any way? Am I chafing at the circumstances He's allowed in my life? Again, that chafing can be evidence through worry, through complaining, through resentment. Multitude of ways. Number two, resist the devil. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. But number two, submit or resist the devil. 1 Peter 5a reminds us that we have an enemy. He's like a roaring lion seeking to destroy our lives, to render us ineffective. It's the same word resist as the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 that says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Taking on the armor of God, not in our own might, but taking on Christ. Being strong in the Lord, resisting the devil. Humility recognizes we have an enemy. We've got a a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And he's using media. He's using our own flesh to tear us down, to render us powerless. Number two, resisting the devil often involves a verbal renunciation. In the moment of temptation, taking our stand with God. Just like Jesus, when He was tempted, He said, It is written. Resist. There's many ways that we can give Satan a foothold in our life. Uh, Perhaps uh, you as a young person or can think back to that time, um, you played hide and seek, and perhaps you raced into the the bedroom and tried to slam the door, but someone, perhaps a sibling, got their foot in the door. And you couldn't get the door shut because their foot was there. That's the way Satan is. He likes to get a foothold in our life. He gets a foothold in our life in a lot of different ways. Um, Ephesians talks about getting angry. Is letting the sun go down on our wrath gives place, gives an opportunity for Satan to have a foothold. Friendship with the world, that's the context of this passage, is an opportunity, it's a foothold that Satan gets his, light, uh, his uh, hand in our lives. How about bitterness? 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says this, Paul says, I forgive in the person of Christ. Next verse, lest Satan should get an advantage. And so it's key for you and I to resist the devil. Identify with God. Align ourselves with God. And then number three, I love this, draw nigh to God. And He will draw nigh to you. I want to ask if John would come up just for an illustration. I did not ask John beforehand, but would you mind coming up? Thank you, John. Draw nigh to God and I will draw nigh to you. John, do you mind just standing right up here? And John's going to rec- represent God, our Heavenly Father. God's a gracious God. He gives grace to the humble. I'm going to rec- uh, represent you and I. When you and I give in to Satan, when we give in to temptation, when we give in to sin, we give Satan a foothold in our lives. And at that moment, there is distance that comes between, you and, between us and God. And the more we do that, the, more, the further away we get from God. But I love the promise of this verse. It says, draw nigh to God. 
and he will draw nigh to you. The word draw nigh is not a complicated concept. It just simply means come closer. Let me ask you this. What would it take for me to come closer to John? Just practically, just in this illustration, coming closer, I could say, you know, I really want to come close to John. I could say, you know, my plan is, to, I, I'm planning to come close to John. But would I be coming any closer to him just by that? I got to take a step. And the moment we take a step, God, take a step, John, takes a step toward us. God, you're putting this, your, your finger on this area of my life. Lord, there's distance in my walk with you. Lord, this is something you're dealing with me about. I can choose to resist you. Or I can choose to obey. The moment we do that, he takes a step. Thank you, John. You may have a seat. Appreciate that. God comes closer. He draws nigh when we draw nigh to him. It's a powerful truth. Coming closer to God, what are the steps? God is asking you to take. And by the way, He enables you to take. Well, I believe we're given specific steps of what drawing nigh to God looks like in the next four imperatives. Be afflict or cleanse your hands. In verse number, uh, middle part of verse 8, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double minded. So if we want to draw nigh to God, what does drawing nigh to God look like? Well, it looks like cleansing our hands. I believe it has to do with our activities, what we do. Psalm 24, verse 3 to 4 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. God, are my hands clean? Are you pleased with the activities I'm involved in? God, are you pleased with what I watch? God, are you pleased with where I go? What I listen to? How I spend my time? Cleanse your hands. Then it says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, there's a clear connection that the Bible makes between the activities we do in the posture of our heart. Perhaps you've heard it said, well, he's just made some wrong choices, but he has a good heart. And really, that's biblically inaccurate. Because God actually says, Jesus says, a corrupt tree brings forth corrupt fruit. A good tree brings forth good fruit. And so what we do, if you're struggling with temptation, whatever that temptation is, whatever those activities are, whatever you're yielding to Satan, whether it's eyes, whether it's um, your ears, what you listen to, your responses, your attitudes, at any point that you yield to the enemy, you've got to recognize it's a heart issue. The Christian life is not just about standards, what we do and what we don't do. 
It goes way deeper than that. It's where's my heart set? And if you think I'm here preaching just on standards, you've missed the point. Because it's you and I, as the verse says, with my whole heart seeking God. Purify my heart. The psalmist said, unite my heart to fear your name. God, I want to be pure. God, I don't want there to be anything in my life where I'm resisting your Holy Spirit. I want to live the kind of life that I'm all in for God. I'm wholehearted in my obedience to the Lord. Is that you? Purify your heart, you double-minded. And then, again, like the layers of an onion going deeper and deeper and deeper, it says this, be afflicted. God puts His finger on those areas in our lives. It's talking about a brokenness of sin. Be afflicted. The idea is be in deep distress. Mourn has the idea of lament. Weeping, of course, shedding tears. Are you broken over what breaks the heart of God? If God is putting His finger on a specific sin in your life, are you broken about it? There'll be points in our lives where we're so broken by our sin that we even shed tears. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. I like the fact it says, in the sight of the Lord. This is not an emotion we work up. It's humility before a holy, almighty God. It's allowing God to take inventory of us, just like the psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Harkening back to verse number 6, God gives grace to the humble. It's not an outward show of humility, but a walk of brokenness and yieldedness in the sight of God. God knows the recesses of our hearts. He knows what we do and why we do what we do. He will lift you up just like that Father, Heavenly Father who draws nigh to us. I love the picture of the prodigal son as he repents, as he comes back to the Lord. God is not standing there with His arms crossed. He's a God of mercy just inviting us back to Himself. He's calling us. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And here it is. He will have mercy and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. John Bunyan experienced the abounding grace of God. God's grace transformed him from a sinner into a consecrated man of God. You and I need God's grace. We live in a wicked world. We need God's grace. God has called us to live a life wholly devoted to Him, and God gives us His 
grace. God enables us. He doesn't just call us to live a life wholly devoted to Him. He enables us to live a life wholly devoted to Him. And humility is the key to God's grace. Submitting to God, cleansing our hands, drawing nigh to God, purifying our hearts. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I'm just going to ask a few questions. I'm not going to prolong the invitation, but I do want to just give God opportunity to work in your hearts. I'm just going to ask four simple questions. Number one, how many of you would say, you know, I have trusted Christ as my personal Savior. I know that my sins are forgiven and that I have eternal life. Would you just simply raise your hand? Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Number two, how many of you as a believer... Again, what we've looked at today is focused on you and I as believers. How many of you would say, God put his finger on a specific sin issue in my life? Maybe it's an area of friendship with the world, flirting with the world, those little compromises, perhaps an area of pride, not submitting to God, resisting him. Perhaps an activity you know is not clean in God's sight. Perhaps a double-minded heart. How many of you would say, God has put his finger on a specific sin issue in my life. By his grace, I'm willing to deal with it. Would you just simply, honesty, humility before the Lord, just raise your hand. Indication. Amen. 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 Anyone else? God put his finger on something in my life. Amen. And then number three, how many of you would say, I'm going through some difficult circumstance right now. Today I recognize I need God's grace. I'm choosing to take God's grace to obey Him in this situation. It could be forgiving an offender. It could be giving thanks. It could be reconciling with another family member. But you would say, right now I recognize I need God's grace and I'm choosing to take God's grace. Would you just simply raise your hand? That's your heart. Amen. Anyone else? I need God's grace. I'm choosing to take God's grace in a situation, a circumstance I'm in right now. Anyone else? Then the last question, how many of you, is there anyone here at all who would say, You know, if I died today, I'm not sure where I would spend eternity. I've never trusted in Jesus Christ to save me from sin and hell. You talk about God's grace, but I recognize I've never trusted Jesus as my personal Savior. To experience His deliverance from sin. If that's you, you've never trusted Jesus Christ, but you'd like to, uh, we'd be happy to have someone come and uh, as you come forward, we'll have an opportunity you just to come to the front and uh, meet with the pastor. We'd like to just take the Bible and show you from the Bible. We're not going to point you out or embarrass you, but if that's your heart, that's your need, you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but you would like to, would you just simply raise your hand? 
pastors here at the front, I'm just going to close in prayer and then just ask that you respond just whatever the Lord is speaking to you about. You can verbally, I think it's important to verbally respond and just a prayer to the Lord. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You can talk to the pastor or just kneel here at the front or pray in your seat. Lord, I pray that you would just have your will and way in this situation and this taking the text of your word to apply it to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that there would be a response to your spirit uh, even right now in your name. Amen.